Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very mouth of time, and more than a few bottles. A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even a soul. And now, your host, John King. Welcome to episode 612 of the world's greatest writing podcast. You know, when it comes out. On today's show, in an act of what might be called counter-programming, Samantha Nickerson and I discuss Anais Nin's slender volume of erotica, Little Birds. I am here at the secret headquarters of the Drunken Odyssey in Orlando, which is the city beautiful. And many of you are in Kansas City for the Association of Writing Programs annual conference. Break a leg for those of you who need to, you know, break a leg. So I am a board member of the Kerouac Project of Orlando, and I am happy to announce that the Kerouac House is reopening its writer's residency after taking a one-year hiatus. The number of residency has been expanded from four to six per year. If you're interested, you can visit the submittable page and send the Kerouac Project of Orlando your very best work. The submission period runs through April 14th. And FYI, it's a blind reading process. And just to make sure that it's extra blind, I am not a reader. I recuse myself due to having too many writer friends. As I pull myself out of back-to-back illnesses, I can report I have touched and written a tiny amount of my screenplay, but the day job is clamoring. Anyway, let's get to today's conversation. And now, the interview of the day. In observance of Valentine's Day 2024, the Drunken Odyssey is proud to present Vintage Smut. In particular, our discussion is going to be about Little Birds, a slender volume by Annie A. Snin, published two years after her death in 1979, a collection of 13 stories that I first read, I want to say in the early to mid-90s, either late in my undergrad days or early in my grad days when I was going to bookstores that had literature sections and just hungrily buying books, which I now never do. 
because I have so many books, including Little Birds, which um, predates acid-free paper. So yeah, my copy is a little, I don't want to say mildewed, but it's, it's aged. The cover of the book is discolored, but guiltily, the way a lot of male readers do, I came across this interesting female writer through my reading of a male writer, in this case, Henry Miller. So N.A.S. Nin was a minor character, an important character in Tropic of Cancer, his autobiographical novel that was published in 1934 in Paris and then wasn't published in the United States until the 60s, where it was uh, one of those First Amendment landmark cases. And what I remember is just the variety and, and maybe strangeness of these stories that were written on commission. You know, what we get from the little preface that kind of comes from her larger collection of erotica, Delta of Venus, she talks about how writing exclusively about sex probably distorts sex and the writer's relationship to sex while it is, I think, a vibrant engagement with sexual imagination, it probably also um, deadens the topic of sexuality. And around this time, maybe inspired by her, when I was invited to write pornography for the internet, back when the internet was, this was before pictures could easily be spread on the internet in, in great volume, before pornography was crystal clear. And in terms of film, there was a smutty website who decided, yeah, we better get in the market and get writers to write smut that could easily be conveyed. And so I was commissioned to write a dozen of these. And I feel like Nin's theory about how what this does to a writer's imagination played out rather quickly in my case, because she wrote a lot of erotica for these commissions. And me... I found it exciting and fun and life-affirming or something for like three or four stories. And these were very short, like two and a half page stories. And by the time I finished the sixth one, I felt like I didn't have much left in the tank to contribute. <laughs> and I still had six more to go to, to get to the basic commission. And I think I only got to about 10 and they took pity on me. And I was paid like $10 a story. But considering these took, I don't know, 20 minutes to write, I do think it was you know, the first time I was actually paid for my writing, cash under the table. And I don't think these actually ever ended up on the internet. I will say that overall, her smut is better than my smut. And I'm here to talk about this great little volume with correspondent Samantha Nickerson, who seemed really excited when I, I gave you a photocopy of my book. I'm like, here's vintage smut I think you need. And you go, thank you. <laughs> You were like, I think you need this. And I was like, ooh, fun. Because I, for the last probably like two years. So the first time I ever read erotica was an accident. It was like Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> I was 11, maybe 12. And then I was like, oh, this exists. That must mean there's more of this. So ever since then, like I leaned toward more sensual literature. But I do read like other stuff too. But for the last couple of years, I got into really into like the fantasy romance like Sarah J Mass. She actually has a new book coming out tonight. I'm going to the midnight release party. But yeah, very much talk about smut with my friends all the time. Like it's just right up my alley. So yeah, when you give this to me, I was like, perfect. It's topical. I do some freelance. Did it help that it was vintage? It was more interesting because it was vintage. And actually reading it, first I want to touch on the preface, what you said. I think that yes, like 
writing smut could be desensitizing. In the preface, Nin kind of likens the life of a smut writer to the life of a prostitute in the way that it's like, it just kind of breaks your governor, right? At some point, it's not that exciting anymore. Or you feel like maybe you're selling out or like putting too much of yourself into it, whatever. But eventually um, it stops becoming authentic. Yeah. In any way. Well, even about halfway through, you can see like a lot of repeated themes, a lot of characters who don't really seem so different from each other. But this smut, just because it's so vintage and so different, I'm 27. So because it's so different from what I've known and like the stuff that I've read, it seemed almost not pornographic at first. It's very literary compared to like if you were to go to like mm-hmm. literatica.com or whatever. It's the literary version of a five minute video. Basically, it's like to the point, like, here you go. This is what you asked for. This is what you get. There's no story involved. Some of it. There are some things that are longer. But at first, it didn't even really strike me as explicit. But later on, there are certain scenes. Maybe it's because the first chapter of this book is about <laughs> literally a pedophile. And I was like, oh, John, what am I getting into here? <laughs> but I got through that one. I gave it more of a chance and actually enjoyed some of the later stories. Does the pedophile touch the girls? No, no, he doesn't touch them. He just lures them in with exotic birds and then exposes himself. He has a wife. He's technically faithful to her, I guess. Depending on one's definition of faithful. Mm -hmm. Well, she's very absent. So this book crosses a lot of taboos. And I, in researching this, I discovered, uh, yeah, younger people who really needed a helmet when trying to read this because, oh, yeah, um, there's pedophilic themes in here and and nin isn't clear how old are these girls right they're they're in school their breasts are emerging which is that 12 is that 15 that's anywhere between like 9 and 15 yeah but i would it's struck me as middle school because don't get me wrong like if this were happening for real in the real world all of it's a crime (laughs) (laughs) even if there's no touching all of it's a crime but the severity of the crime has so much to do with, okay, but what are the ages of, of these girls? And it's kind of bookended because the last story is about a 16-year-old runaway girl. Although in her case, she's running away specifically because she wants sexual experience. And her mother, despite the fact that her mother is apparently this voracious lover, wants to keep her, her daughter in abject innocence. Mm-hmm. I say abject only because the point of view of this young woman, she just feels so tortured by her inexperience. I think that within the house, she's close enough to her mother that she hears what's going on and she realizes she's missing out on something. So yeah, she's going to go seek that out, of course. Like that's normal for teenagers to do. Yeah, regardless of the content of this, the pedophilia was like, whoa. But I think that if you recognize that, okay, first of all, this was written a very long time ago before like political correctness was so abundant and so basically required for any kind of conversation. But also like, you don't have to fantasize to this. You can read it as a story about a guy who's fucked in the head. And that's how I read it. I didn't read that story as erotic at all. I read that as a story about a psychological weirdo. And these are very psychological. Oh, yes. If we had to stress one major thing about this, the psychological aspects of 
sex and desire count way more than the mere physical. Mm -hmm. It seems like she was writing for women, not for men. But then it was also very later on pretty explicit. So it could have been writing for men, but... Well, there was this constant strain with the, the person who had commissioned these stories because, yeah, he kept saying less poetry. <laughs> and if you're a pervert commissioning erotica from specific writers, I'm not sure there are so many writers like, okay, you are displeasing me. Let me go to my other pervert writer. Mm-hmm. But that was a constant strain when, when writing these. And sexuality is a prominent theme throughout so much of her work, not just in erotica, obviously, but throughout her whole career. What else did she write? This is the first of hers that I've seen. So her first published work was, I believe, a study of D.H. Lawrence. An unprofessional study. An unprofessional study, which meant this was not meant to be boring academic work, but rather it was a, a smart work by someone Smart enough to be an academic, but definitely written by an outsider. And I haven't read it, but I I expect she's discussing the sexuality of Lawrence in a way that wasn't sensational. Because Lawrence was one of those authors who was censored. Censored by who? Everybody. Um, How can everybody censor an author? Well, once people get a reputation for writing sexually inappropriate material... And with Joyce, like Ulysses, that was a big case where the book was banned... It was published in Paris, because in Paris you could publish Mm -hmm. anything. But Ulysses is such an enormous book, and it's not consistently sexual in what it's discussing. And it's so, for lack of a better word, impenetrable that... I'm sorry. (laughs) The book clearly... If you think the book is nothing but filthy, then that's really... That's a fact that you want to exist. Because to actually read the book, find the sexuality, think about the content, like, it's just so much damn work. Where Okay, so Ron DeSantis' nightmare, because of, like, in this big volume, a few snippets, probably, of sexually explicit content. But just because they exist, it means that the whole entire book must be thrown out. Out of, like, 800 pages, there's uh-huh. maybe, like, seven pages of, not even seven straight pages, but spread out. You're like, ooh, all right, yeah, we, we, can't, we can't let that exist in the public because that will corrupt... The youth. You know somehow. what I've seen lately? It's like, why would anybody like, I mean, okay, it's basically a public service for people who have their panties in a wad. Like Ron DeSantis? Like Ron DeSantis, yes. He's got his little high heels in a wad. <laughs> I've seen closed door guides to adult fiction basically saying, okay, if you want to read this book, but you don't want to read any of the like quote romance scenes, which smut, read everything except for these chapters. Or read everything except for these pages. Which has one giant flaw as a strategy. Yeah, because good writing, if there's a sex scene, it serves purpose for the story. I mean, that's the flaw I can think of. Can you think of another flaw? Oh, yeah. If you're a young, impressionable person looking only for the dirty parts, they've helpfully (laughs) told you, here are the dirty parts. And you're like, oh, okay. I don't have to read the whole book. You don't. Unless I want to. If you wanted to read dirty things, why would you buy a 900-page book? Instead of just going to the internet and reading dirty things that are five pages long. Well, I think, you know, we're talking about a radically different culture where, I mean, now everyone is 20 seconds away from X-rated material on their Mm -hmm. phone. When that was difficult to acquire, names would, like James Joyce, oh, he wrote that dirty book. (laughs) And that's just a fact kind of across the English-speaking globe. And that was something that Joyce had to deal with and... 
that was a double-edged sword because it's like, okay, everybody knows who he is in the literary world, including millions of people who'd never read his book and were not likely to read his book. But it made him a world-famous figure. Lawrence wrote psychologically rich fiction that dealt explicitly with sexuality and had sexual themes. But, you know, like Lady Chatterley's Lover, the book is about an affair. Mm-hmm. And, all right, what is Ulysses about? It's like, well, it's 800 pages. and Either way, they both get the Scarlet W from society. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, I think that Nin is, I think, a really unusual figure in literary history. So she was friends with writers. She was living in Paris in the 30s, which some writers moved to Paris in the 30s because it was what the previous generation had done. Mm-hmm. Think of Hemingway and Fitzgerald, James Joyce, right? All these people living in, in France. And then in the 30s, most of them had left. And then you've got this young group of writers looking to merge with uh, heroes of the previous generation only to find out, okay, none of these people are actually here now. So what do we do now? And so N.A.S. Nin was highly respected among writer friends and Henry Miller in particular, who wrote these phantasmagorical sex-infused books that occasionally his books are a bit filthier. What are his books about? It's harder to answer than in a lot of other writers. She publishes part of her diary in 1966, long after the fact, and that was you know, she had published some smaller books before then, but that was her literary identity was. She was known as a diarist, which seems like a very strange thing to be known for. I guess if you're the only one doing it, you're filling that niche. I think these days nobody would care. But back then, sure, something new to read. Maybe in Paris, people were more open about their experiences and talked more. And But certainly here... I think that there would have been an audience for something like that. Especially in the 60s when, you know, a lot of these First Amendment cases. What does that mean? Like freedom of speech cases? What do you mean by First Amendment cases? For example, Ulysses for a very long time couldn't be sold in the United States, which meant Joyce couldn't make any money off of Ulysses. But there were bootleg editions. Just publishers are like, oh, yeah, I'll make my own Ulysses. And they were getting the money. He wasn't getting the money, but it was all black market stuff. Mm-hmm. And I guess there probably was some sense of cool cachet to having a bootleg copy of Ulysses. But the idea of James Joyce being able to come to the United States, he didn't. But, you know, the, the sense of him coming to the United States, doing events, reading from his books, publishing his books, like, like that was just a legal impossibility. Tropic of Cancer was... Basically, as of 1961, so it was published in 34 in Paris. Henry Miller becomes a famous American writer probably in 61 when a court case decides, oh, okay, Tropic of Cancer can be published in the United States. There is literary merit. Did every book have to be approved by a court before it was published? Why was there such a barrier? Uh, obscenity laws. So... It's oh. not that every book had to be pre-approved, but once a book was identified as, oh, there are really dirty bits in there. In Tropic of Cancer, it's like, oh, he uses the word cunt, like, which is enough to, to make everyone go, who on earth would sell a book that had the word cunt in it? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, the, just the sense of propriety was annihilated, which is part of the point. Okay. The idea is if a book has literary merit and it's not gratuitous, And again, we could say, well, what difference should that make? 
as long as we're not telling people to, like, here's how you build a bomb, <laughs> why isn't that protected by the First Amendment? But the logic was, if there's literary merit, which required a judge to read the dirty book and then think about it. And so when you read a work of literature, even if it's perverse and erotic and explores the sexual imagination, it's difficult to read Henry Miller's work and decide, though, there's no literary merit here. Mm. You can't read Ulysses and say, there's no literary merit. You may say, this is incomprehensible. Turns out Grove Press was the champion. The publisher took on a lot of these cases and he published a lot of avant-garde work and rebellious work if you're like just looking for a canon of what is the weird rebellious literature that was published in the 60s, you might just go, okay, what was the Grove catalog oh. through the 60s? Because the publisher was himself a rebel. And uh, I, his name eludes me at the moment, but there's actually a pretty good documentary just talking about what he went through with his press to champion all of these works. I was going to say, I would love to like watch a movie or like read a book about like the history of smut in the United States. Like, this is fascinating. I never knew any of this. So she's known as a, a diarist, and there was a film made based on one of the diaries that chronicled her affair with Henry Miller. It was called Henry and June. I believe it was, it was either the first NC-17 movie or else it was the movie that triggered the need for an <laughs> NC-17. Used to be, if a movie was too obscene to be rated R... The only other rating was X. Mm. X was just so identified with porn. It's like, okay, if it's X-rated and not porn, like it didn't make any sense to people. So NC-17 was created to say, okay. This movie if, has literary value. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not of age, if you're not 18, then you cannot go see this movie, even if some other adult in their poor judgment says, I will be the responsible guardian and chaperone this viewing experience. And so NC-17 became a judgment. The sort of morality and, and prudish sense of, of, of social propriety around these topics, you know, was still around in the 90s once they wanted to make a film. Mm out of that. And I'm not sure this comes up anymore because I think eventually NC-17 just stretched what rated R could be. What do you mean stretched it? There's no difference? There's no separation? Yeah. What you could show in a rated R movie just kept expanding Oh. until it's like, okay, well then what, what would NC-17 be? That X rating and an NC-17 rating also meant it was very difficult for a movie to make its money back. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the difference between as far as the standards and like who decides like how it's decided that a movie will be rated NC-17 versus rated X. I wonder if the difference is like, are they actually doing the act like in porn or is it um, <laughs> simulated? <laughs> it Like maybe. And how can you tell? What do you mean? How can you tell? I mean, if you're seeing, I don't know, a, a guy buttock thrusting <laughs> against a woman, it's like, is there penetration and I mean, it's possible to show the penetration if there's penetration, but it's also possible to have it be so that, okay, like simulated sex and real sex, depending on the camera angle, may not make a difference. But I also think of Clive Barker, who made the horror film Hellraiser, which was the first film he directed. And I, I got to hear him tell the story at Miami Book Fair, my first Miami Book Fair experience. Someone asked him about making Hellraiser and he said, editing the film for the censors, he said he was not allowed to show three buttock thrusts. Three. Three. Consecutive or total? Consecutive. 
Okay, so two per scene. So he's like, okay, you're allowed two, and then you have to show something else. And he goes, like, a daffodil. And then you could show two more buttock thrusts, but you could not show three because at that point, it is porn. You could tell he was bemused at the absurdity. I think that the amusing part is that some man somewhere decided that because he only gets in three thrusts before he finishes, that is. Oh my God. <laughs> That's a possibility. That must be what makes it sex. Or to go the more less funny route, at what point does someone become so overstimulated that they stop paying attention to the story? Sure. I'm sure they were taking an artistic approach with that. It is obviously absurd. I think this book, these 13 stories, force us to ask a couple of questions like, okay, this is a woman writing stories meant to please a man who's paying money for these stories. And yet she's interested in the psychology of sexuality. I do feel like at times the stories kind of blur together. Mm -hmm. And so if I didn't take notes, and even some of my notes are like two sisters, Dorothy and Edna, and then there was stuff. In what ways do these engage with sexual reality? In what ways do these engage with ideas about what produces sexual desire in a reading experience? I think that they're all a bit larger than life. They're a bit fantastical. I didn't see much realism in them, but definitely plausible. I just think that the characters took risks with their lives that people don't usually take. Mm -hmm. For example? For example, a character might be living with a man sleeping with this man and then his roommate comes along and she's like "Ooh, i like you too am i going to take the chance of being kicked out of this home and living on the street just to satisfy this curiosity and this desire yeah i'll do it so that sounds like runaway yeah but that wasn't exactly the case because she could have gone back to her home to her mother she just like didn't want to but that was an example just like people making choices that make for good literature but they make for good literature because it's things that real life people wish that they would do, but they would never actually. It's fantasy. It's smut. Or it's the improbable thing that maybe happens once, but the stories are always about that improbable thing. Yes. Uh, Nin does have a talent for finding the improbable thing and really playing it up. I mean, the stories don't drag on. They're very brief. I think the longest one's probably like 15 pages. 28 pages. 28. (laughs) But that one, that one's called a model. And that one has all these vignettes about this sort of sexually innocent, sexually frustrated model who's told all these stories by painters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then the story ends with, oh, and then I met my first real lover. And it's like, like, I wanted to read that part. Normally, that's what the story would be about is that first real lover. So I do find it kind of hysterical how reality is this weird nemesis. Mm-hmm. in these stories. And sometimes the radically improbable bit, it's not happening in the story, but in a story being related within this story. Someone telling right. a story. Because mm-hmm. sometimes in Hilda and Rango, a, a Parisian model, she marries this American writer who turns out to be really sexually passive and he wants her to make all of the sexual decisions. So she ends up drifting into this liaison with a painter who's half gypsy or like he's living with gypsies. Not a gypsy, but living with gypsies. I think he's Mexican. And then he works at conditioning her to be passive. You know, this is so far away from, wow, they really were into each other and then they fucked. Like Mm -hmm. the witches 
I, I believe I could be wrong. I think that's the template of most porn and most <laughs> erotica is. Well, Nin has this thing where she's like, they're really not into each other. He's into her. She's not so much. And then they fucked. Also, it's like, okay, if this is Paris in the 30s, especially in bohemian circles, it's like, okay, you know, this is not Orlando circa 2024. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not exactly 20 seconds away from it, but 20 minutes you could find somebody. In terms of her describing sexual activity, how does this align with your own sense of what you find in a literary way appealing about sex? I think it's like a great litmus test is, okay, here's my toolkit of sexual language. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'm going to, and it's like, and you, because once you think, ew. (laughs) Yeah. Once you get the ick, it's hard to get into the story. I didn't really allow myself to see it like that. I wasn't reading this for personal pleasure. I was reading this to have this conversation. If I ever in the future were to go back and read it just because I wanted to read smut, (laughs) I think it'd be a little different. But I think that reading this, it was clear that although Nin is poetic and writing from a woman's perspective most of the time, most of the time the main character is a woman, I think that she knew that her audience was male. So the descriptions were very female-focused. Like very much describing the woman, the woman's body, the woman's desire, how her eyes looked when she was aroused by him, a POV from a man's equivalent. Mm -hmm. So it didn't do a whole lot for me in that way. Honestly, the lesbian stories were nice. Those were kind of fun. I don't know if I answered your question. We are looking at this as writers from a craft point of view. Mm -hmm. But I do think if you came across ick things, even if you're not thinking, okay, what do I find appealing? I think the ick would stand out pretty bluntly if and when it appeared. And I'm guessing, could be wrong, maybe the ick things have nothing to do with the sexuality, but instead <laughs> some of the other things that make this age poorly, like the... The word oriental used over and over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the only thing that really gave me ick was forcing myself to finish reading this story about a pedophile. Because although I was looking at that objectively, like, okay... That's the little bird's story? Yeah. Okay. Although I was reading that one objectively, like, okay, this is definitely not going to get me going mentally. I don't like horror. I don't like suspense. I don't like any, like, thriller things. It's not what I'm into. Like, I'm not really into psychological media. So that one I was very much not into, but it was short. So I read it and I could see the literary value of it. The rest after that, I think putting that one first today, I think that would be a bad decision in a volume. If the very first story disgusts you, you're going to throw it out your window and never think about it again, except to criticize it. But (laughs) (laughs) maybe putting something so avant-garde and so like off the walls compared to the rest of the stories in the very beginning of that one, maybe in the 40s, that was a hook. I really wish I knew more about the way this book was put together Mm -hmm. because it was published posthumously. The placement of the stories, I think, is effective. For example, The Queen, which I think is the filthiest story. Which one was Um, that? Oh, yeah. The one she's just like walking away with a trail of... Yeah, that one. This model is hearing stories from a painter. I think half of these are about painters and their models. Yeah. And it completely goes against what I would have hoped the relationship would be between a painter and his model, which is... Should we describe this woman? Should we read the first paragraph or so? Not the first paragraph, but the second one that like describes her physically? Well, hold off. We Sorry. can. <laughs> we can. But 
the queen could have been one of the stories that our model in the long story, a model, could have heard from one of the painters. Yeah, the queen just felt like after a story that was really long and it's a story that is mostly told more than shown. And it's just, okay, this poor woman who has to deal with all of the inappropriate attentions from these painters and the queen is so explicit and nasty and it just, Mm -hmm. and it keeps getting nastier and you're like, (sighs) partly my brain goes, what happened to NAS Nin on that day? (laughs) Her publisher was like, make it better. (laughs) Make it more. Yeah, more filth, less poetry. Maybe she wrote this one toward the end of her tenure there and by that point everything was desensitized and she just had to push the envelope further and further maybe i think of maybe my favorite episode of seinfeld and i will try and keep this detour brief so that we can get to the smut you want to read but jerry was recording one of his comedy sets with a tape recorder that he had in the back of the room elaine was there Jerry didn't know she was there, so she just started doing this dirty talk into his <laughs> microphone, into into this recorder. And Elaine thought it was hysterical because she's just parodying the worst kind of filthy porn talk. And what she didn't anticipate was, and Jerry shared this with both George and Kramer before he figured out it was her. And all of them are just completely smitten and mesmerized at how perfect this filthy, and for her, it was a lark. Partly, I wonder, what did Nin think of the queen? Was this her going, oh, you want 30? Okay, here, you fucking piece of shit. Here you go. That's how it felt to me reading this. And it's way shorter than a model. And thank God, (laughs) because the queen, it was almost more than I could handle. Really? It was just, uh, you just want to yell at this guy. Would you stop? (laughs) Yeah. You got to wonder, is this his description of her, his interpretation of her, or was that really how she was? I mean... There's layers to it. And it was almost cartoonish. Okay, what happens with body fluids and how much body fluids and that. Did you ever watch South Park? Sure. Okay, there's an episode of South Park that's making fun of Jersey Shore. And there's this <laughs> caricature of the character Snooki. And she's just like Seems redundant, but okay. Yeah. Yes, but it's even more so. The character herself on the show is a caricature of a human being. You know, it's a very Mm -hmm. small window into these people's lives and it's all kind of dramatized. But the South Park episode is just even crazier. So in the show, she's kind of hypersexual. Like her goal whenever they go out at night is she calls it to smush. Like she's trying to find somebody to smush. But in this episode of South Park, they turn her into like a monster in the closet basically. And she like kind of crab walks around just going, Snooki wants smush smush and like raping men. (laughs) And that's how I feel Bijou, the queen, is described. Like Nin is trying to take her reader and just mash his face into the filth going there you go yep that's this is what you asked for take it Mm -hmm. so all right read that passage the painter sat beside his model mixing colors while he talked about the horse that had stirred him his shirt was open showing a strong smooth neck and a tuft of dark hair his belt was loosened for comfort a button was missing from his pants and his sleeves were turned up for freedom he was saying i like a whore best of all because i feel she will never cling to me Never get entangled with me. It makes me feel free. I do not have to make love to her. The only woman who ever gave me the same pleasure was a woman who was incapable of falling in love, who gave herself like a whore, who despised the men she gave herself to. This woman had been a whore and was colder than a statue. The painters had discovered her and used her as a model. She was a magnificent model. She was the very essence of a whore. 
Somehow, in the horror, the cold womb, constantly subjected to desire, produces a phenomenon. All the eroticism comes to the surface. The constant living with a penis inside of one does something fascinating to a woman. I'm like gagging here. This is... <laughs> ugh. Okay. The woman seems to be exposed to be present in every aspect of her. This is like the weirdest example of mansplaining. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow or other, even the hair of a whore seems impregnated with sex. This woman's hair... It was the most sensual hair I've ever seen. Medusa must have had hair like this, and with it seduced the men who fell under her spell. It was full of life, heavy, and as pungent as if it had been bathed in sperm. <laughs> to, to me, it always felt as if it had been wrapped around a penis and soaked in secretions. It was the kind of hair I wanted to wrap around my own sex. It was warm and musky, oily, strong. It was the hair of an animal. It bristled when it was touched. Merely to pass my fingers through it could give me an erection. I would have been content just touching her hair. And I'll stop there, but if that's how this man is describing her hair, imagine how he describes the rest of her. And he does. He describes all of her. So I think there we reached a level of ick, yeah? Yeah, reading it out loud was (laughs) almost intolerable. Like, I had to stop just to acknowledge how... (laughs) Like, there's nothing wrong with it, but just to be so objectified... And the description of a womb on the outside, yeah, that was the part that got me. And is this some imaginary woman? If not, then I think this is an amazing story, if told by the woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if this is how she sees herself. But if this is just her existence? Well, no, this may not, if she behaves the way she behaves, but who knows what's happening on the inside. Right. Well, according to this man, there's nothing. It's cold on the inside. But clearly, she makes decisions, and those have to come from somewhere. I think he's just bad at describing people. Well, also, if you're an artist model, at least in this book, then... uh, All right. Partly, I have to imagine a culture in which there are a lot of painters, Mm -hmm. many of whom probably are just bad. (laughs) So it's like you hire a model, and then like you paint them... For me, there's Spalding Gray in one of his monologues. As an actor, he was trying to portray a painter. And there's a scene where he's sketching his wife. Mm. And it's supposed to be this romantic scene. And they're supposed to have this dialogue. And this is just, he's auditioning for this part. And he's pretending to sketch in a sketchbook. And the director got pissed off because he wasn't focusing on the romance. He was focusing on sketching this imaginary person and Spalding Gray goes, look, any artist would rather paint than fuck. Mm-hmm. Well, the girls- and part of me wants to believe that. I don't know if that's true, but any great artist, I hope, would rather paint than fuck. Well, in... Or at least would prioritize. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can only paint for so long, right? You need a break. But by then your wrist is sore. Are you really going to be any good? I'm just... <laughs> um, but the women, the models do talk about this in a model- so there comes a point in the story where the models are sitting around just talking about their existence and they're talking about the artists and if they do or don't have sex with the artists, which artists try to come onto them, which artists are really there to paint. And it's one of the only times that the models actually have dialogue and it's when they're talking to, I forget the name of the character and the main character in this one, but she's very inexperienced. She's a brand new model. 
So she's like sitting around with these girls and they're kind of giving her the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. And one of the women says, I don't know what other girls feel about posing in the nude. I love it. Ever since I was a little girl, I liked taking off my clothes. I like to be admired, so on and so forth. And then another one says, I feel humiliated. I feel my body is not my own and that it no longer has any value being seen by everybody. And then another model says, I don't feel anything at all. I feel it's all impersonal. When men are painting or drawing, they no longer think of us as human beings. One painter told me that the body of a model on the stand is an objective thing, that the only moment he felt disturbed erotically was when the model took off her kimono. In Paris, they tell me, the model undresses right in front of the class, and that's exciting. Then another girl goes on to say, if it were also objective, they wouldn't invite us to parties afterwards. And then the main character adds, or marry their models. (laughs) So I think to answer your question, it's subjective, right? But I love how she, in that collective dialogue there many possible reactions to this whole profession yeah i mean goldilocks (laughs) so we alluded to the orientalism and the word oriental which has aged poorly why has it i don't know the history of that um i just know not to say it well among other things it lumps together like all these asian cultures and it's like each culture is different Okay. It's one thing to say, oh, it's an oriental carpet and no one gets mad. But if you're like, that's an oriental person and you're like, oof, mm-hmm. that's bad. And in fact, I'm sure people have been, well, they would have been triggered before now. But for me to even use that as an example is like bad form. Like, you know, you know, don't say the O word. There's a couple of things happening with the way that Nin treats other cultures and ethnicities. And I don't think the book is capital R racist, which is white people good, other people bad. But it definitely partakes in exoticizing other cultures and essentializing other cultures and other ethnicities. Not constantly, but we also have to remember part of the appeal of pornography and erotica is breaking taboos you know she's doing one of those things that is is kind of expected which is writing about having sex with people that your race may not want you to have sex with Mm -hmm. or animals as in the chanchiquito which so you make that sound like it's bestiality it's more of an attack i think it's blurring the line yeah it's not ooh, animals are having sex with women but i definitely think it's engaging with ideas of bestiality and trying to get us to think about it's funny that you say that i didn't think about that at all i thought that for the women it probably felt more like attention was being drawn to a part of them that they would normally want to hide and that they felt exposed and victimized by this little animal that runs up their skirt and attacks them or shows more curiosity and ferocity and fixation yeah that one i think In a lot of these stories, women, especially exotic women or foreign women, are reduced to animalistic qualities. Mm -hmm. But that one is different because it takes women who are within the society that is very humanized and focuses only on their value from the perspective of this little animal. And they're horrified by it. (sighs) Yeah, I could see. I see your point. (laughs) Okay, fine. Culturally, I think the ick factor is probably bigger than sexually in the book, even if I'm pretty amoral (laughs) when it comes to seeing that in literature, not in life. Okay. So when Nin, writing in the 30s, 40s, uses the word oriental, I'm not offended. Whereas if I'm grabbing a lunch with you and you start slinging the O word around, I'll be like, um... (laughs) 
Can we not in this alehouse? No, Thank could, you. <laughs> could we? Could we not ever? We wouldn't have to have that conversation. I don't think. You know, it's partly what we mean when we say oh, it was a different time and and there were different expectations. But also, part of the job of writing this kind of material is to press past taboos. Right. And I do think engaging more meaningfully with these cultures and ethnicities would be better than simply leaning into cliches. I mean, today with the power of the internet and research and travel, you actually could, but Nin was rather limited to people who have visited Paris and stories that she's heard. I'm sure she heard so many stories. I mean, she she was such a cosmopolitan person. Her parents were Cuban, born in America, living in France for a long time. Yes, but think about the people who are traveling, right? And then coming back to Paris and telling her these stories. Those are, for the most part, wealthier white people who are going and observing these cultures, but from their own point of view, which naturally is going to be rather reductive of those cultures. It's going to be very surface level. Maybe they haven't interacted so much with the local people. It's not like... Well, they probably weren't that wealthy. Wealthy enough to travel. They were adventurous writers and painters. My point with mentioning their wealth was to say that they can travel out and bring the stories back, Mm -hmm. but the native people of those countries would never be able to afford to travel to Paris. And fortunately, that's not a giant component of the book. When it's there, though, you're like, oof. Saffron, the story that takes place in New Orleans. Oh, that one's so sad. I think that's the last one. It's near the end. A 16-year-old woman gets married to a 40-year-old named Albert who worships her like an angel, which means he really can't consummate their marriage. Which would be one hiccup. Another hiccup is he has sex all the time with the help. Well, he fetishizes black women. But he says to her, to his wife, you have the body of an angel. It is impossible that such a body should have a sex. You have the body of an angel. And she says, I'm not an angel, Albert. I'm a woman. I want you to love me as a woman. But he just can't do it. Well, he has to be psychologically tricked. Mm-hmm. And what ends up doing it is a sense of smell, the smell of the saffron she buys. I think she buys it just to make food, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, oh, here's an aphrodisiac. No, no, the aphrodisiac is in one of the earlier stories. comes right before a little assault. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. I know that it's not good. This isn't consent. So another thing to think about is how long ago these stories were written, which Mm -hmm. is 70 years ago. And if we think about, it's so difficult to know exactly how to talk about this and what assumptions we should make and what assumptions we shouldn't make. I don't think that it's possible to even get to a point of understanding on that. I mean, when I read really old literature, I'm always surprised when people are sexual in it because you always hear that Everything was capital so L literature was written before sex. Uh, okay, basically, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, these people are humans, but you think, oh, like people were so proper, and women didn't really know about sex until they're married, and blah blah blah. But that's not all. Just like today, some people are kept totally sheltered until they discover it, either on accident or by force or through necessity. But I have to always remind myself, no, people did know about it. People did have sex. Even at 15, 16, people did 
knowingly go in. It just always surprises me. So for me, I think it'd be impossible to like contextualize every single one of these stories in the same way. It's, I mean, it's all different characters, different levels of experience and knowledge. And it's such a great confusion of fantasy and realism. Mm-hmm. How much frustrated sexuality is happening in these stories? A lot. Well, there has to be a little bit of frustration for tension, I guess. Although there's one where it's like all tension and no, yeah. The appeal of the entire story is the frustration. She is something for everybody here, I think. Maybe that was how the book was put together, appealing to a broad audience, 12 different tastes. Here's a case where I do feel like I'm clearly letting the listener down, and probably you too, Samantha. But I (laughs) feel like, I think this may have more to do with this is early work rather than this is filthy work. But... These were published after her death. Although in the case of Delta of Venus, the same year as her death. Were these books she was planning? Did she prepare the binge? Or was this her estate going, okay, now we are free to to release these? This collection was the first time these were read? Publicly, yeah. Why? I thought that these were things that she wrote throughout her career that were published. Like that's how she was making her money. No. And then just this collection was put together. I think she was paid a dollar a page back in the 30s and 40s. So this was not a case of, um, no, she's just generating a living writing smut. Okay, so these were from the vault. Yeah. So this <laughs> is not this is not her, like, there's no, oh, and here's one she wrote in 1975. These were the rejected stories? These were, I guess we could call them B-sides. Oh, like, well, then what is the more commercial stuff? No, I'm very curious. Well, I'm not sure there is commercial stuff. So she's most famous for her diaries, especially the first volume. But those were also censored. And then over time, she started to release uncensored ones. What is the point of censoring a diary? Um, not getting yanked into court for obscenity. In Paris? No, no, here. Ugh. Yeah, no, in Paris, everybody was cool. Later in life, she was living in the U.S. and late in life kind of became a, a minor literary celebrity because of publishing work that mostly had been unseen in America. And I think Henry Miller, as his fame grew, part of that spotlight could then go on to her. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, because I knew this and was friends with and lovers with this crazy guy okay. who is now one of the bad boys of literature, despite the fact that he was now this perverted old geezer who, after Tropic of Cancer could be published in the U.S., managed to take a late-in-life victory lap with his career and his work, and, and all of his books could then be published. And turns out there was a real hunger for his work. If you think about the 60s and just where people's sensibilities was at, like, okay, the hippies find this maniac publishing in the 30s and the 40s, and now all of his work is, is something that you can buy. The revival? Yeah. So there was a revival. And so I I think she got to enjoy some of that. But this is maybe the worst thing to be if you're a writer. She was a writer's writer. Like people came to her parties, but she wasn't making much money. She was beloved by other writers and respected by other writers, but didn't have a broad public. Mm. You know, and she published books throughout her whole life. But I think her international reputation and her reputation here in the United States happened in the 60s. And so in the 70s, she was getting this Lifetime Achievement Award for being this minor character. How Um, frustrating. She had to deal with, because she was a diarist and she just wasn't making everything up, Mm. And because she, unlike Henry Miller, had some sense of shame, writing about affairs to people she's married to, I think it took her a while to, and some for time to pass for her to go, yeah, I'm okay with everybody knowing all of this. That would be so hard to manage. Henry Miller and Tropic of Cancer 
I think he dedicates the book to her, but he calls her Tania. He doesn't call her any. So that there was some plausible deniability. But if you knew, you knew. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to, like, be in their friend group. I wouldn't have wanted to be the person writing about my own... Well, no, maybe. I think think attending two or three parties with them, I think being in their friend group might be a little exhausting. I could be wrong. I mean, is it a friend group or a polycule? We'll never know. It was not out in the open. Mm -hmm. Even among the people, (laughs) the husbands didn't know. Okay. Although in the film, Henry and June, the husband is such a drip that it's like, yeah, how could you not cheat on that person? Drip? Yeah. What does that mean? Dope. Such a boring, horrible, obnoxious, lame person. Yeah, I don't know how people end up married. A drip is a person who goes around saying things like, oh, my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't a roast, John. It's always a roast. You know, it's been a long time since I've read this. And yeah, I guess I'm glad that I I saved the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That it made the cut after a long time. And now the book, I mean, it looks like there's something wrong with it. Like algae's growing on it or something. Just very yellow. It's so yellowed, it's almost neon. I made myself a lot of, of, of sticky notes here. Between her legs, she was impaled on a rigid pole of Puritanism. (laughs) You know what? Stop being so poetic, Nin. Any book that has that sentence in it can stay in my library. That was from the story Lena. Despite the fact that I feel like after after a certain point, the stories just kind of blur together, I do feel like if the book weren't even as long as it is, but had like a couple stories removed, Mm -hmm. I think it would have been about as strong. One thing I note is the sense of sexual drive if the point of erotica and porn and my definition of erotica is just it's literary porn okay but the climax of the stories first of all not all the stories even have climaxes but the climax of the stories are not the sexual climaxes necessarily so the whole point isn't necessarily to get off at all Mm -hmm. it's more playing in the sexual imagination and trying to get into the psychology of it that i find a little trickier to get into the sensibility of Paris in the 30s and the 40s than I did when I first read it back when I was, I don't know, reading almost nothing but period literature from this time period. Overall, I think it's remarkable. Definitely a new reading experience. That is the show for this week. I would like to thank Samantha Nickerson. Don't forget to check out thedrunkenodyssey.com throughout the week for all kinds of great written content, including Perfect Advice from Dr. Perfect, Heartbreaking Comic Book Reviews by Drew Barth, Mind-Bending Music Playlist by Stephen McClurg, Reviews of Classic Cinema by Jeff Schuster, who is the curator of Schlock, and reviews of the best horror films of all time by Dimitri Cockney. Until next time, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm. Dear listeners, writers, and fellow Odysseans, send your questions observations, complaints, manifestos, transcriptions of Turkish opera, and whatever else you got to thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. Sailor Jerry, only you understand me.
A while back, John King endowed the Museum of Schlock and tasked me, Jeff Schuster, with curating the bugger. Each week I curate one more entry into this proud genre of film. I think. Truth is, I'm really not sure what schlock is, but my writing about it is... sublime. Read it every Friday at thedrunkenodyssey.com. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler. <laughs>